great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Dimitri Buyas. Hi, good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the latest election news concerning some candidates and controversy. More arrests being made as part of an investigation into the kidnapping and torture of at least 61 people by an extortion ring. Taiwan's plans to establish more Mandarin training centres in the US and Europe. Hong Kong bookseller Lam Wing Kee seeking permanent residency here in Taiwan as other Hong Kongers are opting not to remain due to problems getting residency. And a funky new flavour, crisp or chip or potato chip, whatever you call them, wherever you come from. But we'll begin with a story that made headlines here this morning in Taiwan, that being US President Joe Biden saying he will not make any fundamental concessions on Taiwan's defence when he meets with China's leader Xi Jinping at the G20 Leaders Summit in Bali next Monday. Speaking at a press conference, Biden said he's not willing to make any fundamental concessions because I told Xi when I was vice president. Now, according to Biden, what he wants to talk to Xi about in Bali is to lay out what each of their respective countries' red lines are and to understand what are the critical interests of both sides to determine whether or not they conflict with one another. Now, the US president went on to say that Washington's Taiwan doctrine has not changed at all from the very beginning. Now, the pending Biden-Xi meeting and talks in Bali, of course, come as local broadcasters here in Taiwan and print media alike earlier this week have been filled with stories concerning how the outcome of America's midterm elections could affect US-Taiwan ties. So, Brian, Mr Xi and Mr Biden are going to sit down for a tete-a-tete and Taiwan, of course, is going to be on the agenda. Do you think it will be number one on the agenda or number two, three, four or five? It's a good question. I mean, particularly it is focused on after the Pelosi visit and the live fire drills around Taiwan that followed, which took place close to Taiwan than during the third Taiwan Straits crisis. At the same time, there are other issues to discuss too, for example, economic issues or on climate change. But it's interesting the way that other issues have become yoked to Taiwan. For example, China signaling at the uh, COP27 that Taiwan is a pressing issue and using Taiwan in the uh, bringing it up in the statement they made on climate change. And so I think it will come up in a significant way. Um, Biden is here signaling that he won't concede. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety whenever he goes into a meeting with Xi that he'll say something that flip-flops or changes position, whether that is declaring support for Taiwan independence or going against it, because he does have a pattern of that. And so I think there will be a lot of uh, people watching as to what happens after this. Well, it's hard to. Well, it's a hard guess. We, I think, we will maybe find out really what will be they will discuss after the meeting. Uh, but I do think that may might want to skip that topic because there is a lot of tension. There's been a lot of tension around this Taiwan issue for some time already, and they have more pressing issues that they need to uh, address. Well, economic issues is a very important topic. Uh, you can also maybe they can discuss uh, chips uh, because the, the because of the latest legislation in the U.S. that restricts exports of uh, some chips to China. So, given those many pressing issues, it's maybe likely and 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 we do know that they won't be even if they discuss this topic, they won't budge from their uh, position, uh, whether it's Xi Jinping or uh, Joe Biden. So, well, they will likely, I think, continue to skip the topic and focus on the real issues that maybe they could. We'd see some progress after the after the meeting. 
Yeah, it is a point of high tensions. And so I think another factor is, for example, the U.S. midterms, which just took place. And I think what's quite interesting, for example, about issues such as the Pelosi visit, part of the reason for that may have been because the Democrats were hoping to shore up their record as being strong in China. And so I think for U.S. domestic politics, then, being as tough on China is a priority. And so I think Biden, his actions will perhaps reflect this. And so it is uh, the trade war continues, and there is a regard to semiconductors and so forth. Uh, there is an attempt to, for example, separate issues such as climate change from human rights or the issue of Taiwan or political issues, but that has not worked out, as is with uh, China's recent actions. And so I think there will be tension. Uh, it's very hard, I guess, for the two of them to agree not to say anything, actually. And of course, Brian, the tensions you were talking about when the Chinese delegate or the representative at the COP27 turned around and told delegates there that Beijing has made steps to ensure Taiwan's participation at the UN Global Climate Summit. Yeah, I do wonder what that means. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just uh, Taiwan's denial of uh, representation in international bodies, even as an observer, because of Chinese pressure. And I do think these uh, military threats that are directed at Taiwan, such as daily air incursions, perhaps emit a lot of carbon emissions. Well, when it, when it comes to the, the COP27, uh, well, like in previous years, it's very difficult for Taiwan to join any kind of uh, international organizations, but also international conference. Uh, but when it comes to the goals of the COP27, which is to move towards uh, uh, um, zero carbon emissions, uh, we don't have to wait until after we join the COP27 to start doing something. So, yes, we hope the situation could improve in the future. But in the meantime, let's move forward and take the necessary steps to ensure that Taiwan would reach its target of 2050 to be carbon free by 2050. And of course, Brian, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs did release a video to go with the COP27, even though Taiwan wasn't invited to the event. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's an easy way to hit back at China, for one, uh, on social media. But I think also particularly this fits with the pattern of Taiwan often trying to seek admittance to the international community by showing its good citizen that even in spite of not being a member, it is willing to commit to climate goals or, for example, human rights conventions and that sort of thing, voluntarily ratifying them or taking on these goals on its own. Well, there were actually many videos because they released the video in many different languages. So it was also well planned, uh, good marketing, uh, social marketing and social media. Uh, they pushed the video on social media and they succeeded uh, in getting a very impressive reach for that for that kind of content. Uh, I'm just wondering is uh, the question is maybe how much do uh, people outside of Taiwan know about the Taiwan issue and the fact that we can't be part of the COP27. Uh, this is something we still, we actually don't know. Uh, maybe most foreigners just don't have a clue of the COP27 issues are already pretty complicated. But if you add the, the Taiwanese twist into this, um, it, I'm not sure if they get most of uh, what, what was the point of the video. Of course, Brian, Taiwan is technically at the COP22, but only NGOs in the form thereof. Yeah, that's right. And so if it's also with the pattern of that, sometimes with international uh, conferences or organizations, you do have Taiwanese NGOs participating individually, or, for example, with other organizations from other countries that allow them in. And so that even includes, for example, UN bodies. And so this is quite interesting, actually. Uh, this continues a long-standing pattern. But it's also interesting to note which conferences then Taiwan tries to highlight uh, its exclusion. I mean, for example, in past years, as included the WHO and the ICAO the World Health Organization and the International Civil Aviation Organization. And so then that's with regards to the global health and regards to global aviation. But climate change somehow has not come up there in terms of trying to flag Taiwan's exclusion uh, in a very high profile way. It does occur, I mean, with regards to these videos, but it doesn't become this major publicity campaign per se. And of course, that's the point. Of course, we usually at the UN general meeting at other international groups like the WHO, the WHA, we have 
allied nations standing up and saying, hey, where's Taiwan? But we haven't heard this from the COP27. Yeah, that's right. Although it's interesting because either way, political jockeying does come up during the uh, COP27. I mean, there is the the discussion, for example, of which leader met with which leader. And there's a potential opportunity for exchanging ideas or trying to dial back something or float an idea. And this comes up. And so I think even then, despite uh, that this hasn't been the case, that hasn't been politicized in this direction. I mean, it's still coming up. Well, there are many issues at stake, and then we can't. I we know that in Taiwan and the Taiwanese people like when uh, foreign countries and when we talk about Taiwan on the international stage. But there are more issues at stake here, like climate change, and those even our uh, diplomatic allies, they all have their own issues to push and their own agenda, and they want to make also to see some progress during the COP27. So it's not because we don't talk about Taiwan that the issue that that we don't know about it, but but we can't always, the focus of every international conference should not be about whether uh, Taiwan is part of it or not. Uh, when it comes to the WHO or uh, the other organizations you mentioned, Taiwan used to have a way of still uh, through ally, allies and friends to find a way to get the information and to get to get what they wanted, to under, indirectly get what they wanted. Now, whether Taiwan, the, the the government wants to talk to the Chinese government, it's a, it's a different issue. The only way to solve that issue about sovereignty is to talk directly to China. So if the government, uh, well, is not willing to discuss with the Chinese authorities for now, it's fine. But in the meantime, we have to find ways to move forward and solve problems. Moving on now to some local election news and the KMT's Taipei mayoral candidate on Thursday of this week announced that he's resigning from his post as a lawmaker to focus on his election campaign. Now, speaking to reporters at a wet market in Taipei's Beitou district while canvassing for votes there, Zhang Wen'an said his decision to resign is a clear sign of his determination to make every effort to win the election. Now, recent polls have shown that Zhang is leading the three main contenders, those being the DPP's Chen Shijong and former Taipei Deputy Mayor Vivian Huang. Now, the most recent of those polls was released by the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation. That was released actually yesterday, Thursday here in Taiwan, which shows Zhang with a 29.8% support rating, followed by Huang on 26.6%, and the former health minister with a support rating of 21.8%. Two other polls have actually switched Huang and Chen and put Chen in second place and Huang in third place. Now, all 12 candidates, yes, there are 12 candidates for Taipei mayor, although most of the media focuses on three of them, will be presenting their policies in televised presentations tomorrow and again next Tuesday. So, Brian, of course, Zhang was under a bit of pressure from people to actually resign, and he did. That's right, yeah, because I think this often comes up with election cycles, that a candidate is accused of holding on to a position in order to have something to fall back on if they don't win that race. Uh, the most famous example is, for example, Hungary, that he was criticized for going around and campaigning and taking all these vacation days, and despite being mayor of Kaohsiung, in recent memory anyway. But this comes up with a lot of elections, and so this is another case. It's a very easy political attack. And so, for example, Chen Shijong leaned into this, saying that, well, even if he, be, he this question when posed to Chen Shijong, he responded that it doesn't matter if he would be resigning or not because he doesn't do anything in the legislature. And so then after that, Chang does resign. But I think part of it actually is because of pressure from Huang, because of the fact that Huang has really doubled down on her reputation as the deputy mayor, as someone that does things and very invested in the city and knows how it works, while her attacks on the other two candidates are that they're quite distant and not actually putting everything into the race. And so I think Chang is actually responding to this in some sense. And Dimitri, what have you seen from the Taipei mayoral race so far? 
Well, the the race is uh, pretty pretty similar to to, to races in in previous year. Uh, during the debate uh, last weekend, I, I was actually uh, there at the debate, and the only the, the the most important problem, the most important pressing issue I had was that the candidates kind of uh, expand and and made some. Uh, some some proposals for improving uh, because there are some issues with the cost of living in Taipei, the cost of housing, and maybe the lack of social housing. And each of the three candidates made some proposals. But uh, we've heard proposals like these in the past, and Kowenjo also made some huge, big, big promises uh, for improvements into, especially for social housing. But um, actually, the Despite those proper proposals, none of them just uh, committed and said that, well, if I don't reach the target and the numbers I'm proposing today, I won't run for a second mandate. So this is the election, the election time. They would promise almost anything just to get more votes. But we also want them to have a long-term commitment. And we do hope that if they don't deliver on their promises, they should not run for re-election. So this is the first time maybe for uh, especially two of two, two candidates. This is their, uh, for the three, for the first time to uh, join a major election like this. But beyond, after the election, we do hope that whoever is elected is going to deliver. And if they don't, they shouldn't run for re-election. And Dimitri, you watched, you were there at the debate. I mean, which candidate do you think came out looking the best? Well, they look all great. Uh, there was something that actually you didn't see on TV, uh, but actually uh, another, um, I think it's someone from another team, another candidate actually ran on stage and tried to make a statement complaining that uh, the TVBS and uh, San Lee, uh, SCT TV, they picked the three main candidates in the election and disregard the other, uh, there are 12, right? So yeah. the, the other nine. So... Um, there the, the was it was an, an issue because uh, he believes that it's not fair, and then the TV stations shouldn't have handpicked the potential uh, winners in the election. They should have given a chance to all of them. So, well, that was a little drama at the beginning of the of the of the the, the live uh, the live streaming uh, last week. And of course, Brian, like I said, the all twelve candidates will begin giving their policy presentations this weekend. But do you think possibly TVBS? Or the company that ran the, the debate could have had more candidates on the stage? No, that's a question. I mean, it's unlikely any of them will win, though perhaps one would go viral with, for example, an odd a speech or singing a song on stage. Uh, that that actually did show up at the bit of the live stream uh, in the beginning. Uh, for example, you did see someone run on stage. It was a supporter of the Taiwan Renewal Party candidate, who is a former DPP uh, politician, actually. Uh, but then there was a little bit of a kind of pushing back and forth, and then he was pulled off, and then you saw someone addressing a mic awkwardly between the three main candidates as they are clasping hands and for the photos, and so that makes for a bit of an odd photo. Um, yeah, but it does come up from time to time as well with the mayoral races. In terms of my own opinion of the debate, I actually thought Huang did the best because of the fact that the other candidates had more openings for her to attack. Uh, misstatements, for example, Jiang Wan'an and his uh, bus proposal of setting up a reservation system for buses and getting on them for the elderly, which has been criticized as unrealistic. And so too with Chen Shizhong and his proposal to install electronic bidets in every toilet in Taipei and swap that out for every toilet. And so in that sense, Huang could attack the two. Uh, both Jiang and Huang attacked Chen uh, because the fact is they are both pan blue candidates. And uh, I think particularly Chen and his COVID record are, make easy targets in that sense for the pan blue camp. 
And in that sense, though, I think that uh, it is actually a question of what goes forward, because it did actually appear as though Chang pulled ahead after the debate in terms of polling. And Brian, how do you think they're going to pair when they give their policy presentations? Do you think that these three main candidates are just going to basically shine over the others, or do you think one of the other nine could actually come through with a clear policy? It depends. I mean, for example, I haven't looked into those nine, but for example, if there is someone that is a, for example, single issue candidate, and they're actually only running to have this platform on televised uh, debate you know, to propose an idea, that idea might actually gain a bit of traction because of that. That does happen as well. Um, it's also possible that one of these candidates will just focus fire on someone they don't like, and they're only there to attack someone they don't like. That's also been uh, come up as a possibility in past years. And so I think it really depends. But I think particularly then, it's also possible that it will affect the overall discourse of the debate. Let's say all nine gang up on, or 11, sorry, gang up on Chen Shizhong or something like that. That would actually change the tone of the debate. And in other election news this week, Amnesty International Taiwan's office waded in on the controversy surrounding the ban on coronavirus patients voting in the upcoming election. Now, Office Secretary General Cho E. Ling told reporters that the banning of coronavirus positive voters from casting their ballots is a violation of legally protected political rights. That statement came after the Central Epidemic Command Centre earlier this week said that patients who break quarantine to cast their ballots will face a fine of up to 2 million NT and they'll face that fine for violating the special act for prevention, relief and revitalization measures for severe pneumonia and novel pathogens. That's a bit of a law to break, really, isn't it? Anyway, Amnesty International Taiwan says that law cannot justify the government's decision to prohibit an estimated 300,000 people from ex exercising rather their voting rights. And the office secretary-general is accusing the government of breaching Article 25 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which states that every citizen should have the right and the opportunity to vote and be elected in genuine and periodic elections. Now, the UN Convention was adopted by Taiwan in 2009, even though, of course, the country has not been a UN member since 1971. So, Brian, we talked about this the other week, but now the, the Central Epidemic Command Centre has said if you go and you're sick, you get fined. But Amnesty International have said, hang on a minute, that could be a violation of human rights. That's right. And so previously, the NPP was the political party that was most critical on the issue. And there was some back and forth between government bureaus, between the Central Election Commission and the Central Epidemic Command Center, CEC versus CECC, in other words. Uh, and so the CECC, that is the uh, Ministry of Health, was more hesitant on the idea, originally saying that they expected cases to drop and they were considering lowering measures in order to allow people to vote, uh, but then not actually taking a firm stance on this. While then the Essential uh, Election Commission stated more firmly that people with the coronavirus that violated quarantine would not be allowed to vote. And then the CECC, confusingly enough, stated that, well, if you do go and uh, vote, we're not going to we're not going to block your voting rights. But if you go out, you'll get fined. And so this made the, uh, the situation rather confusing between all these different parties. And so now it's resulted in this uh, outcome in which Amnesty International is now throwing its weight behind calls to allow for voting. Uh, but it's a little bit late at this point. Well, it's true that in some countries uh, on election day, uh, they, you might be able to cast your ballot even if you're in the hospital or if, you have, if you're not able to go to uh, the voting station. But in this case, I think both the ruling party and the opposition party should blame themselves because there is no absentee voting in Taiwan. And the very reason why there is no absentee voting is because they're arguing endlessly about how we can control and get votes from potential Taiwanese citizens in whatever country. And because they are after doing the math, they can't, or they can't see the benefits for themselves. So Taiwan is one of the very few countries where you don't have absentee pilot. 
And so if we had this option, well, it would be actually very easy if whoever is in current quarantine would be able to vote. But again, Taiwan, and especially when it comes to election, we always make things more complicated. So, well, arguing endlessly won't solve the problem. Uh, if you're in quarantine, you shouldn't be able to go out. Now, who uh, decide this? Well, the health, the health authorities decided this. We were okay with it for about two years. Now it's a bit late now to argue about our rights. So it is quite interesting in that aspect because this is clearly the reason why the CEC, the Central Election Commission, is backing away from the idea. They don't want to approach this idea of absentee balloting because that opens up a political controversy. Uh, in that respect, there have been other proposals, for example, looking at other countries or regions, setting up a specific time, for example, for people with COVID to go out and vote. That's been brought up. Uh, that was done in, I believe, Japan. And so there are other proposals. But it actually, uh, I think in terms of election cycle, this came up as an issue relatively late, by which time there's no time to have a kind of robust public debate on it. Uh, what is interesting, though, is if there are still a significant number of COVID cases during the time that the election takes place during that week, and there are quite a lot of people being unable to vote, that will lead to questions about the legitimacy of the election. That is to say, the party that comes out worse will contest results, saying that, well, they're not actually really that valid because of the fact that there's all these people that could not vote. And this has occurred before, for example, in 2018, with the long lines at polling stations because of all the referendum questions to answer and all the candidates to vote on. And that was criticized, particularly by the KMT, uh, of actually affecting the election results. And this all occurred with, for example, the uh, mayoral election with uh, Ding Shouzhong losing and contesting that. And so this might come up, actually, afterwards, depending on how many people are with COVID at that point in time. But cases are falling, so I think it's really unclear at present. And of course, Brian, also this week, there was a report in the United Daily News that basically said local governments have been asked to provide poll workers with a list of coronavirus patients in their electoral districts to better identify quarantine breakers. Of course, the government dismissed that, saying we're not doing that. But I mean, that's what some people are reporting about this. Yeah, that's a question. I mean, there's all these concerns about surveillance regarding uh, COVID-19. I mean, this has not come up as much in terms of a uh, kind of very central political issue, but it's definitely occurring in the background. There are people concerned about, for example, the electronic monitoring of COVID patients. The, the government has quite a lot of data on COVID patients. Uh, for example, when you go to the doctor, they could pull up your travel history and see if this person has traveled abroad and might have gone to country and gotten COVID. Uh, so that, that, is, that is an issue. Though I do wonder how poll workers would identify any random person that comes in like, oh, this person has COVID. Yeah, it can lead to some problems, Demetri, of course. Well, yeah. there are, well, there are problems about the, the privacy privacy issues because whether you have a, whatever medical condition, it shouldn't be up to uh, uh, the staff from the police station to decide whether you can vote or not. So if it's the case, uh, we can expect a lot of people arguing endlessly at the station saying, I'm okay, I can vote, but you still have COVID. So that would make the voting process even more complicated. But among all these suggestions that were made over the past few weeks, uh, the CCC itself said that most of these suggestions are not feasible uh, because the COVID cases are not just in one location, in one city, in one corner of Taiwan. They all spread all around Taiwan with more than 15, 17,000 uh, voting stations. You can't double that number overnight just to accommodate a couple, maybe a few hundreds, or maybe for some stations, one or two uh, COVID patients. So yes, this is an issue. Uh, we should have discussed this problem earlier. But again, in Taiwan, we always wait for the last the last minute to, uh, to discuss important issues. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan this week and a shocking story of kidnapping and torture that has been splashed across the front pages of local newspapers continued this week as law enforcement authorities here made more arrests in connection with the deaths of three people and the kidnapping of more than 60 others by an extortion ring. On Tuesday, police announced the detention of a suspect, a suspect rather, believed to be the leading member of the organised crime gang allegedly responsible for the holding and torturing of the over 60 people. The suspect and his girlfriend were found at a bed and breakfast in Pingdong County's Hung Chuan Township. Meanwhile, on Thursday, law enforcement authorities said that three more arrests had been made in connection with the investigation. Those suspects were detained in Jilong, Taipei and New Taipei. Now, the latest arrests bring the total number of people detained to 21, and police say they're still working to track down other suspects. The victims were lured to locations in Taoyuan and New Taipei on the pretense of holding interviews for high-paying jobs. However, they were then held against their will for between less than a week to more than a month by the suspects who tortured them in order to get their bank passbooks, account passwords and IDs. Now, police last week freed 58 of the victims of the organised crime gang. However, over the past week, the remains of two victims were found in mountainous areas in Taoyuan's Guishan district, while the body of a third victim was found in Nanto County. Now, while this has made headlines a several days over the past week, it hasn't lived on the front pages of the newspapers. And Brian, considering over 60 people were kidnapped and tortured for their personal information, um, I wonder why. Yeah, that's right. And so there have also been some questions raised regarding that. Uh, particularly, the Pan Blue camp has criticized the DPP of then trying to cover this up because this makes, for example, the mayor of Taurin, who is a DPP politician, look bad. Uh, but it is a question. I think there is actually much more focus on the election cycle at present. I see much more front page reporting on, for example, the US elections, the midterms, also the Taiwanese elections, uh, than I do about this, this controversy or that this event took place. A lot of the news reporting has framed it as Cambodia-style kidnappings because there are the cases of potentially thousands of Taiwanese that are lured to Cambodia on the promises of high-paying jobs and then kidnapped and uh, so forth. Uh, but then this takes place closer to home in Taiwan. I mean, a lot of the shock regarding the Cambodia kidnappings was that this was Taiwanese kidnapping Taiwanese, not Southeast Asian people kidnapping Taiwanese. But then this takes place directly in Taiwan. So one would imagine there should be more shock and that this has not occurred. That's quite surprising, actually. Well, there is, yeah, the connection with the, the previous stories about Taiwanese traffic to Cambodia, I think there is a clear connection here. Uh, first, we could see that... Uh, well, for these, how powerful these uh, media organizations are in Taiwan, kidnapping 60 plus people in a small country like Taiwan. And this is something big. Uh, I don't, uh, in, we've never heard of similar stories in maybe in Europe or the United States, but 60 people who vanished overnight. That's something that when before, from the perspective of the police force, that should be a major case and they should be the top priority case uh, well, especially ahead of this election, was very uh, there are lots of tension already. But also, what this case shows us is that how these organizations, how they raise the bar, it, it's it's a business, and the way uh, they made a mass, they say we if we send those Taiwanese maybe to Cambodia, we can actually do the same by keeping those Taiwanese in Taiwan, and those organizations who are uh, well very powerful but also well well organized are finding new ways to. Uh, extort money from 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 the the average Taiwanese f families and those young people who believe that they just by answering or responding to an ad just could make a lot of money overnight. I mean, Brian, do you think when they, when these suspects go to court, there'll be more focus on it in the media? And if there's if obviously some of them, three people are dead, fifty eight people were rescued, 
I mean, surely they're not going to go to like a soft prison sentence. The public's going to be demanding a long sentence for these people, I would have thought. Hopefully there is more discussion of that once the election passes, but it is a bit of a question. I mean, particularly the way a lot of the articles were written, for example, the fact that three people died was buried in the article, and I was kind of surprised in that sense. Uh, but then it's interesting. I mean, the three major gangs in Taiwan are all involved. I'm not sure necessarily it's the same organizations as in Cambodia, because the MO, the way they're doing it, is very different. Uh, it's about kidnapping people and getting them to withdraw money, whereas in Cambodia, it's getting them to work in telecom fraud. And so that's a bit different. Uh, it's a bit of a different way of kind of carrying out this. So it is a question, but I think more more details will emerge as time goes on. Uh, I just one of the ways in which everything is affected in elections in Taiwan. Every bureau of government is working overtime to try to have accomplishments for elections. Uh, oftentimes, the schedule in which this works is based on elections and so forth. And so, this is also the case with the police. And moving on now, the Overseas Community Affairs Council head Tong Junyuan on Tuesday announced that his office is planning to open 25 more branches of the Taiwan Centre for Mandarin Learning next year. Now speaking at a legislative hearing, Tong said the current plan is to establish additional Mandarin learning centres exclusively in the United States and Europe. And according to the minister, that decision is based on a national strategy and also because it targets primarily adult education, while the council's small, similar Mandarin Learning Initiative in Southeast Asia is aimed solely at students. Now, Tong says his office plans to add 25 additional branches in 2023 after opening 25 this year. Now, Brian, of course, the, the government's made great, great play of the Taiwan Centre for Mandarin Learning, which apparently the expansion plan for which is actually overseen by the National Security Council. For some reason, I haven't quite grasped <laughs> yet, but never mind. But, of course, it's, it's faced lots of opposition because was, some have argued it could take over from China's Confucius Institute and others have said, hey, look, just stop wasting your money. Yeah, that's a question. I mean, particularly there's a the notion of Taiwan filling the gap that is left behind as countries are more critical of China and more cautious of Confucius Institutes. I think there's also this kind of fantasy of the ROC of returning to this notion of the past in which Taiwan had kind of monopoly over this uh, representation of quote-unquote China abroad, which is the Chinese language. And so then having these Mandarin training centers everywhere uh, and so forth. And uh, the question, though, I think really goes back to A, resources. I mean, can you really compete with China, which has, is larger and has more resources and ex uh, ability to extend its influence abroad. Uh, are there enough professionals for that? At the same time, there's also the question of a lot of expenditures going to outreach programs for overseas, targeting the international world, quote-unquote, but then not having results necessarily. Another example is, for example, Taiwan Plus, the English language network, which has also seen similar contestation with the view from some lockmakers that this is a waste of money, for example. Well, there, money is an issue because uh, the economy, the Taiwan economy next year is not going to... Uh increase or the GDP is not going to increase at the same speed it did over the past two years so yes we need to discuss the cost and what is actually the goal of these centers if it's just to teach uh, to teach Chinese yes well any private institute could do that but if it, we are going again with this master plan of having uh, and, and, and learning from China and doing exactly the same and na naming those centers uh, the same way well in this case well, the government maybe should give us more information about why do we need such uh, institutes and how are we going to, uh, where will the money come from? Of course, Brian, there's also been questions about who works at these institutes. I mean, of course, they, they haven't said, do they hire Taiwanese nationals? Do they fly them to the countries? Or do they hire nationals in the countries where the schools have been opened? 
Yeah, I think that's another question. The logistics of this. I think the curricula is also an interesting question because what political stances will it reflect? Uh, for example, it may aim to depict Taiwan and China a certain way. Uh, this, the idea of doing this then is to propagate ideologically, and is that really the purpose of educational centers? I mean, China tried this with Confucius Institutes. Does Taiwan really want to do the same? I think it's a question for a country that claims to be a democratic country and, and so forth, uh, trying to push an ideological message abroad. How do you transition from the uh, Confucius Center to the Mandarin Center, meaning that are we going to start teaching simplified Chinese at those centers? Because for foreigners who learned simplified Chinese before, they can't switch overnight to the complex script. So there are lots of issues that we haven't addressed yet. Well, we're just we're not the government just announced that they would they have this new master plan and they're gonna again spend big money on it. Uh, yeah, licensing programs for teachers in Taiwan for Chinese teachers do also include teaching, for example, pinyin and uh, simplified Chinese. But then we actually have that number of qualified people that can do that actually. So that's another question. I think that's very worth raising. Uh, I mean, there's might be the attempt then to propagate uh, Juing, for example, in, uh, abroad. I mean, that'd be kind of interesting to see. Uh, but then it, it's just, it is one of these ideas that's thrown out there and there's questions about logistics. What is interesting though, is I think a lot of young Taiwanese do have a real urge to go abroad and see the world. For example, study abroad programs or work study programs are quite popular. And so there's some way to dovetail this with this uh, notion, perhaps there's a way to recruit enough people that's to be seen. Moving on again now, and former Hong Kong bookstore owner Lam Wing Kee, who fled to Taiwan in 2019, this week announced that he's applied for permanent residency here. Now, according to Lam, he's filed his application with the government for a residence permit as a professional in the field of culture and arts. And he says he expects to be informed of the outcome of the application next year. Lam has been living in Taiwan on a tourist visa or a work visa since he came here after he fled Hong Kong due to concerns that he could be arrested. Now, Lam's statements to local media come amid some rather negative comments by other Hong Kongers who've moved to Taiwan in recent years in regards there being able to permanently settle here. That's right, and so it's become an issue. It's always been an issue that the Tsai administration vowed support for Hong Kongers after the 2019 protests saw extensive violence against particularly young people. But then it kept a lot of the existing avenues as ways to allow Hong Kongers instead of, for example, providing new avenues. Studying here or starting a business, those are easier ways to come here. And are these the people really at risk when you're at the front lines and you may be a high school student protesting? Perhaps not. And so then that raises questions. And a lot of people have gone elsewhere because it's so difficult in Taiwan. It's prohibitively difficult. And then for Hong Kongers or people from Macau or China, they are in a very odd category because they're technically not foreigners. It has created a lot of complications, particularly during COVID, for example. There are a lot of people not prevented from coming back because of the fact that they were not technically foreigners, but also they're not technically Taiwanese nationals in some way. Uh, and so there's that. But then I think also particularly Lam Wen is quite a high profile figure. So this will be a litmus test for how the government behaves forward, going forward. At the same time, then, with regards to lesser known activists, there will probably be also some backlash. Someone so high profile can get probably a way to stay here, but then others may not be able to. And of course, Dimitri, it's not just Lam Wen Key, like Brian said, is a well-known activist, but of course some Hong Kongers that have come to Taiwan are professionals, teachers and doctors who've run into major roadblocks getting their residency sorted out. Well, yes, because Taiwanese authorities don't make things uh, simple for them. Uh, during the Oslo Forum, uh, Oslo Freedom Forum last week, I had a chance to talk to Nathan Lowe, uh, who was in Taipei, and we had a quick discussion about his new life in the UK. And we actually asked him, why didn't he pick Taiwan at that time? Why not settling in Taiwan? And he told us that he actually, um, he, moving to London 
uh, was a chance to maybe educate and share more about uh, what China is doing in Asia, and they want to maybe educate people in the West. And I totally understand. But the next question, the next question we ask is whether Taiwan delivered on its promise to welcome those activists from Hong Kong. And on this question, he was, he kind of tried to find an excuse for Taiwan, saying that yes, Taiwan has to be careful, and we you never know who you know someone who applies uh, maybe to for long term in Taiwan. Maybe, well, this person maybe uh, he's in, the the person's intention are not clear. So we also understand that. And then my last question was that. Uh, we hope to see you more often in in Taiwan since because the Taiwan just reopened the country. And that's when he told me that, well, I still don't know if I can have a visa to come to Taiwan. So even for him, a high-profile activist, it's still complicated to get a visa to come to and visit Taiwan friends in Taiwan, which I found very awkward because uh, the Hong Kong situation was really at the center of the previous presidential election. And a lot of promises were made, and but there was also a consensus that we need to help. But a few years later, we can see that it's still complicated. And, well, it's a bit sad that after when, when we turn off the lights, the election is over. We haven't seen any progress over the past two, three years on this very important topic. And before we go this week, local snack maker Guai Guai has teamed up with the Pingdong County government to release a new grouper-flavoured version of its popular rice puffs. Now, the move is the latest effort by a domestic food company to pick up on the grouper after China banned imports of the fish in June. Now, the Pingdong County government is praising the snack maker for breaking with tradition to bring grouper to the masses and also lauding its support for the island's aquaculture industry. Now, Pingdong County Magistrate Panman An has been celebrating the collaboration with Guai Guai and he took to Facebook to do so, in which and a photo was him was posted on the Facebook holding a pack of Guai Guai grouper chips saying, you can really taste the grouper in these fancy new snacks. Now, China, of course, announced the suspension of grouper imports from Taiwan in June, citing banned chemicals and excessive levels of a banned antibiotic in imports of the fish since last December. So, Brian, guai guai, you can't eat guai guai. Apparently, you're allergic to guai guai, and that's not because it's owned by the China Times Group. <laughs> no, it's not. But uh, I am allergic, and unfortunately, I can't eat it. But it is one of Taiwan's most recognizable snacks. And so this even comes up in China's ban of exports from Taiwan because it is so recognizable. And it's most famous for the superstition that if you put it next to machines, it will make sure the machines keep running. Because guai, as in, you know, like obedient or good, as you might call a pet or a child, well, you can put that next to the machine. And there's also superstitions regarding the color. It has to be the green one. It can't be yellow or red because green means go, red means stop, yellow, slow, slow down. And so there's that. Uh, but it's kind of funny to me because I feel like then if this is the case, I mean, previously we saw groupers being used in school lunches. Whenever China bans a product, now we can expect to see it everywhere in other products, in school lunches, in guai guai, maybe in other snacks too. Guai uh, guai is interesting because uh, Taiwan, how are you going to market a product like that outside of Taiwan? Uh, yes, uh, whenever whenever there is a ban, and we hope the, the the locals, Taiwanese, will just catch up and eat more. So maybe Taiwan military, they're still eating uh, pineapples now because of what happened a couple of months ago. So if we're going to start feeding people with quite quite just to uh, overcome this, this, this effect. Well, a lot of people outside of Taiwan have had an issue with Taiwan's uh, pizza culture. And we've had a lot of different flavors to pizzas in Taiwan. And some, some, we've made some people pretty uh, angry about it because they believe that we are kind of destroying this 
uh, Italian food culture. Now, well, snacks, it's pretty much the same. Uh, how will customers react to it? Maybe in Taiwan, you will see a lot of people trying out and maybe they will like it. But outside of Taiwan, it's going to be very hard. It's very going to be a very hard sell. The groupers, uh, crackers, it's not that easy to sell. And Brian, of course, Guai Guai does have bubble tea flavor. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I feel like it's another thing about recognizability and uh, bubble tea is associated with Taiwan. So you put that in basically everything. And so then you try to get people to come when they, they're tourists, for example. Tourists are people that buy this because they're so curious about these odd flavors that perhaps you can only get in Taiwan. Guacoy actually particularly has recognizability among engineers and uh, programmers internationally because they sometimes they do know about the superstition. And so sometimes it is something they ask their Taiwanese friends to buy for them so their machines run smoothly. And of course, the green flavor is the coconut flavor, I believe, Brian. Oh, I believe so. Yes. Yeah, though I'm not as familiar due to not eating it. <laughs> and Dimitri, will will you be rushing out and buying some Guai Guai Grouper flavor chips? Uh, well, not yet, but I think kids will like it. They will give it a try, and then you will see quickly on social media how people react to it. And of course, they could have made pineapple chips. Yeah, that's right. Although uh, the Taiwanese pineapples that were blocked were very high end products, so that really raised the price of these snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And by Dimitri Buyas. Hey, it was good to be here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.